0: hi everyone welcome to history of asia as you may have guessed we discuss the history of asia over here but we do it in an unorthodox way we start off in the present then work our way back to the past in the first series we covered the history of arabia now we are talking about persia or iran if you will in the last couple of episodes we saw that for most of the 18th 19th and 20th century that country was mostly a pawn in other people's games. It was constantly taken advantage of. So by this point, you may start get used to seeing Iran as a relatively weak player, no? However, this is not at all self-evident. For until the 1700s, the Persians were not a people to be trifled with. Their Safavid dynasty belonged to the big tree of the great Muslim empires together with the even more formidable Ottomans and Mughals, their next-door neighbors. But while these other two lost ground to the Europeans only slowly, the downfall of the Safavids happened very sudden, and without Westerners having anything to do with it. In fact, it's often blamed on a single blunder, an unnecessary defeat against the smallish force of Afghan rebels. As we discussed last episode, After their surprise victory, the insurgents laid siege to the Iranian capital. With the starving population resorting to cannibalism, the Shah had no other option but to surrender his throne to the rebel leader, Mahmoud Holtak, who then became Shah. But since most of his new subjects did not recognize him as their king, and since he didn't have the power nor the intention to impose stability, the realm quickly fell apart. It would prove the beginning of a century of anarchy and civil war. It's almost a miracle that Iran survived this period at all. As a distinct country, I mean. It long looked like it would be torn apart by its neighbors. That it did survive was in large part due to the short and turbulent reign of Nadir Shah, a gang leader turned king who gave the invading forces a bloody nose. Apparently. This discouraged them from further intrusion into Iranian territory for the remainder of the 18th century. That and the fact that it was ruined anyway and therefore not worth the trouble. In fact, rather than playing into its rival's hands, Iran's instability would yet cause them headaches. Nadir's aggressive wars brought grave damage to the Mughal and, to a lesser degree, the Ottoman Empire, which would prepare the ground for European advances in India and the Middle East. Besides, the long period of decline ensured that when Iran was finally reunited under the Qajars, it was in no position to withstand the advance of Russia and Britain, who turned it into a semi-colony, like we've seen. The only reason why it didn't become a full-blown colony was that it had to act as a buffer state. Perhaps the most enduring legacy of the dark 18th century was that it enabled the rise of an activist Shiite clergy which would eventually culminate in the current Islamic Republic. So it's by no means an exaggeration to say that the sudden collapse of the Safavids was a world-changing event, a political earthquake that caused tsunamis far and wide and that still continues to make waves until this day. So I think it's well worth having a closer look at its causes. We discussed the immediate cause already. There was an insurgency in the province of Kandahar, in today's southern Afghanistan. The Persians reckoned that it would be easy to crush, as they might since they had both more men and better weapons. But that was already a crucial mistake right there, it's never wise to underestimate your opponent. Because of their arrogance the leading officers hadn't bothered to prepare properly and they failed to cooperate in earnest even as the battle was going awry. It also meant that they were totally unprepared when things really started to go down the drain. Not only practically, but also psychologically. They had no plan B, so they started to improvise, or even to panic, and that resulted in poor decisions. In short, on the surface, this does look like an avoidable catastrophe that can wholly be blamed on a few screw-ups. However, this alone cannot explain why such a superpower could be humiliated by an unimpressive group of rebels. As we shall see, there was much more to it. For Status, we must ask ourselves why the Persian commanders proved so incapable, why they failed to coordinate their actions. Then we might ask why the Shah did not, or could not, call on reinforcements from other provinces. Why they, were there not more or better troops available to begin with? And finally, we have to wonder why the Afghans proved stronger than expected, and why they started their rebellion in the first place. There was clearly something rotten in the seemingly prosperous land of Iran. The rot was not obvious on the surface, but it was clear from up close. For someone who bothered to look at least. Unfortunately, one of the people to recognize this rot was the man who would start the fatal Afghan rebellion. This man was called Mirwais. And yes, if that name sounds awful, that's because I have no idea how to pronounce it. Apologies. Mirwais, or however you call him, was the leader of the important Hotak tribe and the father of Mahmud Hotak, the one who would overthrow the Safavids and replace them with a the short lived Hotak dynasty. But in the beginning of our story, Mirwais was just an influential figure in the locality of Kandahar the Safavids had just sent a new governor to rule this province, a Georgian, who felt that this Mirwais guy was a threat to his power. So he had him arrested on charges of plotting against the state. In all likelihood, the governor just wanted him out of the way so that he could consolidate his own influence in the area. Mirwais was sent to Isfahan, the Safavid capital, undoubtedly in the hope that he would be executed there. Instead, It would place him in a perfect position to study the workings of the Persian court from up close. Apparently, what he witnessed convinced him that the Safavid of its structure was rotten to the core. And he reckoned that if his people were really to rebel, they might well succeed. On that point, he probably decided that he would make sure that that happened once he got home. But how to get home? That was easier said than done, for he was still some sort of prisoner. Well, first, he managed to win the Shah's trust. When he subsequently asked permission to make the Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca, it was granted. On arrival, he contacted a local ulama who was very anti-Shiite, like most scholars in the Hijaz. Now, the Safavids, as you may recall, were the most outspoken Shiite rulers on the entire planet. So Mirwais presumably had no trouble securing a fatwa from the ulama, sanctioning his future rebellion as a jihad against an infidel tyrant. He would later put this to good use to rally Sunni fighters behind him. But first, he had to return to Isfahan, still pretending to be a loyal subject of the Shahs. He managed to convince his superior that a real threat to his position came from the governor of Kandahar. Yes, the one that had orchestrated Mirwai's arrest. He must have been a very persuasive man, I think, for not only was he allowed to return to his power base, the Shah even tasked him with deposing the governor. Of course, he fulfilled that task with glee, but then he did something the Shah did not expect. He grabbed the momentum to launch his rebellion. It must have taken a while before the Shah realized he had been tricked. It's a little strange, you might say, that he had been so naive, since normally, Persian shahs were a paranoid lot, as perhaps they should be, judging from this episode. It's probably during his stay in the capital that Mirwais got the idea of starting a rebellion. So we might speculate that the malfunctions of the Persian court and the divisions within it were clear to see. What might he have noticed then? Well, perhaps it started when he first took the measure of his boss. As kings go. Shah Hossein was a gentle soul. If some toddler had asked him to write a page in her friendship book, he would no doubt have written, things I like, good food, lots of wine, parties and beautiful women. Things I don't like, campaigning, dangerous and governing, boring. Now, if this guy would have had to fight for his throne, it's safe to presume he would never have got anywhere near it. But rumor has it added that he became Shah precisely because he was so soft and because he did not care for the affairs of state. Apparently, his father had passed away without appointing a successor. So it fell to the court nobles, the clerics and other hangers-on to decide which prince which prince <laughs> sorry would get the job. We should not be surprised, I guess, if they picked the one that would prefer to be left alone and leave the hard work to them as opposed to someone who would murder them uh, because they look threatening to him. Such decisions always look evil at first sight, but if you put yourself in the shoes of the people making them, they quickly start to look like common sense. Now, even more than the people controlling them, such weak rulers are almost invariably judged harshly by historians. Many claim that, in a monarchy, a weak ruler always means trouble for the empire. Now, I'm not so sure whether I agree with this, and I don't think this criticism is always fair. Had Hossein showed more ambition, he would likely not have been chosen as Shah in the first place, which would mean that the man who would become Shah instead probably would have murdered him. So, shying away from politics was perhaps the surest way to stay alive. But perhaps it was even better for the realm. For you see, Safavid princes were probably among the worst possible candidates for leading their country. That's because, starting with Abbas the Great, shahs had always locked their sons away in a harem. This was because the ruler feared that one of them might otherwise gain a power base of his own and then attempt to overthrow him. Indeed, Abbas himself had overthrown his own father. He wanted to shield his sons from politics, to make sure that they could not do the same to him. That was the theory at least, but it was clear from the start it didn't quite solve the problem. Abbas had three sons, he had one killed and the other two blinded, because he suspected them of plotting his overthrow. Probably they were innocent, but the story attests to the fact that locking the princes away that didn't remove the possibility of a coup, nor the suspicions of the Shah. It did, however, have a negative impact on the quality of leadership. For the harem was not exactly an environment that encouraged a healthy mind in a healthy body. Until the moment they were either enthroned or murdered, the princes spent their entire lives in idleness, drinking, smoking opium, and fornicating. That last activity may sound rather benign perhaps, but it may well be largely responsible for the other two. The polygamy made the Persian cult a perfect breeding ground for sexually transmissible diseases. Most of all, syphilis, which, I have heard, can be very painful. And remember, back then, there were no effective painkillers like we have today. However, there did exist a drug that could ease the suffering. But it was a drug in two meanings of the word, opium. The combination of constant agony and incessant intoxication might explain why so many rulers of the time had a reputation for madness, and not just in Iran, but in other countries with a similar court culture as well. We met several mad kings in the last episode. Now these were warlords and they'd had a very different youth uh, from the spoiled uh, Safavid princes. Akka Mohammed was even a eunuch, so frolicking around was probably not on his menu. But they all suffered from pain, from wounds, or indeed from mutilation. And where else could they find relief from that, except by turning to alcohol or drugs? This is often glossed over, and therefore it's thought that these people were simply mad with power, which in turn fits the orientalist stereotype of the despotic East as if mad rage is in the asians blood somehow that's of course nonsense in europe there was no shortage of less than healthy monarchs either which was partly due to another equally unhealthy practice also related to the succession there was a lot of inbreeding in the royal houses of europe even when this didn't cause insanity in itself which it sometimes did it often led to ugly painful afflictions which again were remedied in ways that were bad for your mental health. By the way, syphilis was rampant in Europe too. The harem also engendered paranoia. In Europe, succession crises often occurred because the king failed to produce a rightful heir with his queen, which created a power vacuum. In the Muslim world, there was little chance of that, since rulers took multiple wives, sometimes a great many, As you will remember, Fat Ali Shah Qajar may have had a thousand children. The problem then was not that there was a lack of possible heirs, it was that there were too many of them. And there were no firm rules on who would be the first in line. So once the Shah died and one of his sons succeeded him, the other princes were often put to death together with their closest family. That's why the women in the Haram were notorious for their so-called scheming. In, uh, in air quotes. Uh, this word, by the way, is a typical patriarchal bias. If men do the scheming, it's called shrewd maneuvering. If a woman does it, it's often presented as conniving. Well, if you think about it, what's the difference really? Besides, these court women did it not because they were backhanded or power hungry by nature. They had little choice for their life and that of their children simply depended on it. If a rival got her son on the throne. She was finished. So, influence at court was a zero-sum game, and she had to compete, willing or not. Wouldn't you scheme all you could to keep your children safe? The result was an environment that encouraged paranoia and ruthlessness. I've always found it fascinating how generations upon generations of monarchs could find it in their hearts to murder or maim their own flesh and blood, I feel I could never do any of that if my life depended on it, and I'm pretty sure you all feel the same. But then again, we didn't grow up surrounded by booze, trucks, and concubines. (laughs) At least I didn't. Imagine if your father deposed your grandfather, perhaps killed some of your uncles and brothers, and that the earlier generations did the same. Suppose your father then locked you away for fear that you might depose him one day. And then imagine your mother warning you every day that your half-brothers are conspiring against you and that they wouldn't hesitate to kill you if they had the chance. You might feel a little different about brotherly or fatherly love then, and that in itself might also make you a wee bit paranoid, I think. Then add to that a daily dose of alcohol, opium, and perhaps constant pain from syphilis. Et voilà, we have a vicious idiot king. Not that long ago, it has sometimes been claimed that the strong influence of women in this period was responsible for the weakness of the Shah. Luckily, this wrong headed view is no longer in vogue, but there is still an impulse to think where there's smoke, there's fire. It's true that cliches seldom appear out of thin air. Therefore, I think it's worth considering where a stereotype comes from, so that it becomes more obvious where the flaw in the thinking lies precisely. It is true that the bond between a prince and his mother was usually very strong, and that therefore the queen mother often had a lot of influence over the shah. That's only logical, as she was the only person whom he could always trust, all emotions aside, since her fate depended on his. So there's no denying, I think, that some women did wield a lot of power at court. What is unfair and plain wrong, is to see that influence as a reason for the bad quality of government, as if their gender was somehow responsible for poor decisions, or for making the Shah soft, in air quotes. The indolence of many Shahs and the power of quarter women resulted from the same causes, namely the institution of the harem. But there is no reason to believe that the influence of women in itself had a negative impact. I suppose it will be obvious by now that keeping princes in the harem until their father died, that had terrible consequences for the quality of later rulers. It was the worst possible preparation for the task that lay ahead for them. Indeed, preventing them from gaining political experience, that was the whole point of locking them away. For all the wise measures that Abbas initiated, and that were later abandoned, it was this very harmful one that would prove the most enduring. little wonder since his successors had just as much reason to fear their offspring as he had. According to Stephen Dale, there was just one effective ruler in the entire Safavid history after Abbas, and that was his namesake, Abbas II. Dale attributes this to the fact that he became Shah at age 10, before the poisonous harem culture had time to turn him into a bored sickly addict. Ironically, however, Abbas II's most important military feat was to capture Kandahar from the Mughals. In hindsight, it might have been better for his country had he failed at that, for it was the imposition of Shi'ism on this Sunni region that would kick off the rebellion that proved fatal to the Safavid empire. That brings me back to the harsh judgment that is heaped upon Shah Hossein and other so-called weak rulers. Given what we now know about the harem, What useful qualifications could we reasonably expect a prince to have gained there? And could you really say that that was his fault? He didn't have much choice in the matter, did he? Now, if he had no chance to prepare himself for the task of government, were it not better then, if the ruler just stayed in the harem, enjoying himself, while some more capable person would take matters in hand? You might recall that, when we discussed the reign of the Qajars, We saw that there were some capable viziers who were prevented from enacting sensible reforms because the shah interfered, often by having him killed. Now, if a shah preferred to stay in his harem and bother no one, wasn't that a harmless attitude in comparison? Well, I guess that depends on the personality of the people pulling the strings and on their willingness and ability to put the state's interests above their own. In the case of Hossein, that was the real problem. The man who would gain the most influence in his entourage was a strict Islamic scholar called Mailesi. The Shah followed his policy advice to the letter. In fact, he even demanded that all officials obey Mailesi in all his commands, and that he could dismiss any of them without further sanction. In reality, his powers were probably somewhat less formidable, but his impact is not to be underestimated. The Shah seemed anxious to please him. For instance, he ordered that the royal wine cellars be emptied, and that the wine be destroyed in front of the palace. This public display was instructive of what was to come. More or less like the Taliban, the Safavids would ban all sorts of un-Islamic activities. Not just whoring and drinking, but even music, colorful spices, and flying kites. The crown as the guardian of the fate, indeed. There was a striking contrast, however, between the public image and the treatment of the general population on the one hand, and the private behavior of the shah on the other. Like most other Safavid shahs, Hossein loved to indulge in boozy escapades. The effect of this schizophrenic situation was doubly harmful. The hedonistic lifestyle that was prevalent at court continued to produce low-quality leadership, but the official intolerance had even worse consequences. One might very well claim that in the end it would prove fatal. To recap, Shi'ism was the state religion and it had always been important in the self-image of the Safavids, but in time, and especially under Abbas the Great, it had become pretty tolerant towards other sects and faiths. Minorities of all kinds had played a pivotal role in its trade and administration. As Shi'ite clerics like Mailezi gained more influence at court, They convinced the Shah to abandon this policy of tolerance. This threatened the very stability of the state. It even had a direct financial cost, and not a trivial one. Apparently, the Treasury raked in taxes on drink and prostitution to the tune of 50 kilograms of gold a day. But, as we'll see, there were other consequences as well, that would prove more costly even. The renewed intolerance antagonized the Sunnis and Sufis of Iran's periphery and chased away the minorities that were crucial for trade and for international relations. We've already seen that the instigator of the fatal Afghan rebellion obtained a fatwa which sanctified his war against the Safavids. This would provide the official casus belli for his rebellion, but it would not have had the same effect had the Persians not cracked down on Afghan Sunnis. Besides, this religious element may have provided the rebels with a powerful backer as well, none other than the powerful Mughal emperor Aurangzeb. In earlier times, the Mughals and the Safavids had been allies, partly because a Mughal emperor had found sanctuary at the Safavid court when he was temporarily overthrown. But Kandahar would be a bone of contention between the two. And when the Safavids tried to enforce their Shiite brand of Islam on this Sunni region, the fervently anti-Shiite Mughal emperor Aurangzeb saw a reason, or a chance, to get involved. I must say that not every book on the subject even mentions Mughal involvement, which I find kind of weird. But it might explain why the Afghans were stronger than anticipated. For the Mughals could provide significant military assistance. All in all, the Safavids would pay a high price for their hypocritical intolerance. Now, lazy may have been the single most influential person in Iran, but it's not as if he was the sole puppet master. There were multiple powers behind the throne, each vying for influence. This had enabled a strong monarch like Abbas to play the one off against the other. But now there no longer was a solid central figure. And that meant that there was no more coherence, no clear policy direction. Besides, in this power struggle, there was little room for compromise. He who tried but failed to win the Shah's favor was bound to be destroyed by his enemies. So, with a weak and uninterested man on the throne, the Safavid court became even more of a snake pit than before. If a piece of woodwork is rotten, that sometimes becomes visible only when something hits it. This happened in the pivotal fight against the Afghans. The Safavid generals then saw each other as their biggest enemy, and they proved more interested in sabotaging each other than in winning the war. Axworthy relates how in the crucial battle in 1722, the vizier held back his troops as he watched the royal guards being encircled and slaughtered by the Afghans. The Arab allies for their part avoided contact with the enemy forces and instead went for their baggage trains in search of plunder. Abbas had invested in a strong artillery. If it had been kept in shape and wisely used, it could well have won the day. But now, it had become too small, as well as too badly positioned and undefended. So the artillery was destroyed before it could be deployed properly. Clearly, not only were the Safavid commanders not cooperating, nor were they very capable which also may have had something to do with the craps in the bucket dynamic in the elite those that looked too capable were seen as a threat and brought down survival of the fittest, uh, fittest does not mean that only the strong survive the ones that thrive are those best adapted to their situation and in this particular environment showing strength and capability did not enhance your chances of survival on the contrary While in the environment of the battlefield, it was another story. The most important members of the elite, probably, were the so-called Qizilbash. These were Turkmen tribes that had migrated to Iran, together with the Safavids, and helped create the empire, like the Qajars, or uh, the Afshar, Nadir's people. Originally, they had been formidable fighters, very skilled as horsemen, like many peoples of the steppe. Once in power they became a martial elite. Now, if earlier confrontations with the Ottomans had made something plain, it was that the military balance was shifting in favor of those with more gunpowder at their disposal. Abbas the Great had understood that if Iran wanted to become the equal of the great gunpowder empires, well, it had to invest in gunpowder. He did this, and thereby he turned the Persian army into a brilliant fighting force. This did not only result in a strengthening of the state's power vis-à-vis its external enemies, but also internally. In the first part of this series, we saw that Iran is sometimes compared to a mountain fortress, in which the different chambers can be closed from within with relative ease. Some local lord in, say, the Caucasus, could hold out for a long time in this mountain castle. But if the other party has cannons, which can destroy such fortresses, well, that changes the matter, doesn't it? So under Abbas, the grip of the central state was strengthened. The Kizilbash did not like any of this, however. As local landowners, they profited from the decentralized state of affairs. The use of gunpowder clashed with their warrior attic. And indeed, as the cavalry became less important, so did they. That had been Abbas's objective all along, by the way. Abbas the Great, as his nickname attests, was certainly a formidable monarch, but ironically, he unwittingly made sure that his successors wouldn't be. We've already talked about his introduction of the harem policy, but on top of that, he made sure that his sons could not follow in his footsteps quite drastically by killing and blinding them respectively. So because none of his sons could succeed him, the Chon, passed to his grandson, who was just an infant when he died. And that was just asking for a renewed influence of all sorts of advisers, palace guards and concubines, but especially of the kizilbash, who acted as regent to the young Shah. They used their Rewan influence to undo many of Abbas's reforms. Not unlike in the Qajar era, the military could have been much more potent had it not been undermined from within viziers who tried to modernize the army to bring it in line with the standards of the time were removed by these powerful tribal leaders this had consequences abbas had used this reformed army to capture iraq from the ottomans if it could take on one of the strongest armies of the pre-modern world I find it hard to imagine that this army would have much trouble with the band of rebels that eventually destroyed the safavid empire a century later but by then The army had degenerated. The Kizilbash once again dominated it, but they were not nearly as formidable anymore as they had been two centuries ago. They still presented themselves as a warrior elite, but they were no longer great warriors. Instead, they had become a spoiled elite with the land, riches and all sorts of privileges. No longer did they spend their days training, let alone fighting. In other words, they were the Knights of summer and winter was coming. I know that sounds preposterous, but you can take it literally. For in this period, the entire region would face extraordinary cold and drought. This may have been part of a phenomenon that's referred to as the Little Ice Age. Now it's a controversial concept and multiple causes have been suggested. The most interesting, I find, is that it was caused by the mass extinctions of the late Middle Ages. First, you had the genocidal conquests of the Mongols and their imitators like uh, Tamerlane. The Mongols had brought with them the plague, which wiped out two-thirds of the population in many areas. Then in the New World, you had the arrival of the conquistadors, which caused even more extreme extinction. Entire regions of America were completely depopulated by disease long before the first Europeans set foot there. It would take centuries before the population reached medieval levels again. In the meantime, a huge area of farmland was once again covered with trees. Um, If uh, civilization is destroyed, the jungle grows right back. And as we are all too aware of these days, trees take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So when there are many more of them, the Earth cools. Hence the Little Ice Age. Now, again, there are many other theories. For instance, that it may have had to do with volcanic activity. And it's also disputed whether this or that local phenomenon can be traced back to global CO2 levels. But it sure sounds like a fascinating theory to me, so I couldn't resist bringing it up. It is key to understanding the collapse of the Safavids too. For regardless of the causes, the climate in and around Iran did become harsher. And like the coming of the long winter in Game of Thrones, This meant that people would start to move en masse. Nomads found that their grazing land could no longer feed their animals, so they migrated. Now, asylum seekers that arrive alone are often victimized, unfortunately. So understandably, the nomads sought safety in numbers. They put aside their differences and lined up behind one leader. The Afghan uprising was not the only one that the Safavids had to contend with. Kurds, Balochis and Turkmen among others, also rose up in this period. The Safavids constantly had to send out troops. The fact that these problems could arise anywhere and in more than one place at the same time meant that they could not afford to send their whole army to face any one of them. So too with the attack of the Hotaki Afghans. Besides, there were other, even more dangerous enemies lurking just behind the border, like the Ottomans and the Uzbeks. So the Iranian forces were divided and kind of overstretched. And given the fact that its terrain was so hard to traverse, these different border troops could not easily come to each other's aid, even if they wanted to. And given the ambitions of their commanders, that was not always the case either. Even if the Persians managed to repress most of these uprisings, there were hardly any spoils to be gained from that. Unlike earlier wars of conquest, these wars only bled the treasury dry and it was in a bad state already. Stephen Dale describes the state's financial position at the end of the 17th century as critical. As with the Qajars later on, a shortage of cash diminished the possibilities of investing in the army. Now this is yet another reason why the Safavid state would prove more fragile than it looked on the surface. Iran, like most states at the time, depended mightily on agriculture. It was the farmers who had to pay for costly wars. But they could ill afford this. They faced poor harvests as a result of the unfavorable climate. In desperation, they wanted to leave in great numbers. In earlier periods, they had been allowed to do that. There was no tradition of serfdom in Iran. An exodus of farmers on such a giant scale, however, would surely spark a giant food crisis. To avoid this catastrophe, the peasants were forced to stay put a desperate and unprecedented measure. And of course, it caused further unrest. Now, due to its topography, Iran had always had much less farmland and less farmers than their Ottoman and Mughal neighbours. That was one reason why Abbas I had gone to such lengths to conquer the densely populated and fertile region of Iraq. It could serve as Iran's breadbasket and provide a lot of tax income, But already in 1638, about a decade after his death, the rich territories of Mesopotamia were lost again, this time for good. Partly because of the deteriorating state of the Persian military, partly because the Ottomans were no longer occupied in Europe as before. After the loss of Iraq, Iran lacked the resources to fund an army that was on a par with that of its rivals. To make up for this, it had to find other sources of income. Instead, it lost one, namely trade. Abbas the Great had successfully supplemented the income from agriculture by investing obsessively in trade, most notably in silk, on which he had imposed a state monopoly. This was crucial, for only this enabled Iran to pay for imports. And it depended on these imports for basic items like food or cotton cloth. And while domestically, Iranians mostly used copper coinage to pay for imports, they needed silver. Alas, Iran faced a structural trade deficit. It imported much more than it exported, the lion's share from India. So silver was constantly flowing out of the country towards the east. Stephen Dale quotes a contemporary as follows, quote, Going to the Indies, to Surat, where all silver of the world unloads, and from there, as fallen in an abyss, it does not reemerge, unquote. Many of these riches, by the way, would soon move in the opposite direction as Nadir Shah set out to rob Delhi of its fabled riches. But in the meantime, the constant drain of silver not just decreased the state's capacity to invest in the military, but also affected ordinary people. Still, thank God that it could still export so much silk to the West. What else was it going to do? Alas for them. The gatekeeper for Western markets was their archenemy, the Ottoman Empire, which at times imposed a sort of trade embargo. One reason why this could be circumvented was because the silk trade was mostly in the hands of minorities, mostly Christian Armenians and Georgians. They could cross the border into hostile Ottoman territory, where they also had strong trading communities. Such minorities made the trade run smoothly, even during wartime. Abbas had no problem with their religion, on the contrary, the fact that it isolated them somewhat from the rest of society, that was an advantage as far as he was concerned. It made them more dependent and hence more loyal. But later shahs would not be so pragmatic. Under the influence of people like Mylesi, minorities were badly discriminated against and sometimes attacked. This caused great harm to the trade. To make matters worse, silk producing regions were either lost or destroyed in wars. But even before that, Abbas's successors had abandoned the state monopoly on silk so that the treasury could no longer profit from it. Note that this financial disaster was of Iran's own making. Europeans had nothing to do with it. On the contrary, the Dutch and the British had even provided an important market for Persian silks. By extension, the same goes for the entire catastrophe that befell Iran in the early 1700s, and that would be the start of a long period of misery. As we've seen, there were many causes for this, but none of them had anything to do with Europe. If I had to pick one factor that I think was the most important, I guess I'd point to the rising intolerance, because it caused or worsened so many of the other factors. It cost money, it isolated Iran diplomatically, It gave ideological ammunition to its Sunni rivals. It sapped its intellectual dynamism. It destabilized the periphery, and it undermined trade. In other words, nearly all the factors that led to the eventual implosion can be linked to it. But then again, perhaps this just shows my own personal preferences. What we seek, that we shall find, I suppose. On the other hand, isn't it interesting that right now, iran's intolerance is once again contributing to these same problems the religious strictness means a lot of foregone income from entertainment tourism and trade militant shiism led to costly involvements in foreign wars and has unnecessarily brought iran powerful foreign enemies that might otherwise be natural allies even the intolerance also means less homegrown innovation and has caused a brain drain Isn't this a textbook example, then, of how history sometimes rhymes? If so, in the next episode, we will see that it's not impossible to abandon a policy of fervent Shiism. We will talk about how the Safavids started off as an extremist movement, but then mellowed down. Under the religiously tolerant Abbas, they developed strong ties with the rest of the world and became a formidable and generally respected empire. So Tehran, if you're listening take note (coughs) rather unlikely but to those of you who are listening thanks a lot if you like the program consider giving it a good review or a five-star rating on Spotify iTunes or whatever platform you're on for those of you who've already done this thanks a bunch it's a great help and as always if you have any suggestions or questions or if you noticed any mistakes on my part feel free to contact me on Facebook I also have an email address, but I warn you, I receive a lot of spam, so I might delete your message by mistake. Therefore, if you want to make sure I get your message, Facebook is better. Thank you all. We'll catch up soon. Bye.